Have you had your soup today? And the cold, crisp taste of Coke is so satisfying, it keeps me from eating something else that might really add those pounds. <laughs> pounds, pounds. Joy's making a funny face at me. We are here today to put the she in embellishes. Ooh. That actually has she in it. Yes. Because we're going to, I don't know, we're just, we're not embellishing anything. Because this interview just further embellishes. What we've been saying for two years. Uh Okay, I got it. (laughs) My name is Summer Yeager and I'm here with my beautiful co-host Joy who I think is having a weird side cramp <laughs> right this minute. That's is Georgia true. giving you trouble up in there? Every once in a while. I mean, yeah. most most days. Yeah. But this is a different kind of just weird. Just, a lot of times she just likes to kick me, obviously. Yeah. I'm sure anyone who's ever had a kid knows, knows that. that. Yeah. Um, they're very kicky. Yeah. They like yeah. to move around a lot uh-huh. in there. But, and also once they're born. Yeah. And then forever until right. they turn 30. Yeah. And they just never stop. <laughs> and then one day they're like, can I stop moving forever? Yes. Can I please take a nap? <laughs> um. <laughs> yeah. I yeah. was having a weird side cramp as that happened. Yeah. Right. When I started, she made a face at me and I was like, do I keep going? What do I do? What oh, happens? Yeah. It's fine. It's gone. Already. I'm not. A- okay, great. All right. Well, was that's, that your that's my me? random fact about oh, okay. you. You're welcome, everybody. Um. <laughs> You're right. That did just happen. And, <laughs> and you're right. I am Joy. And I'm here with my beautiful co-host, Summer, who um, she, I, I know you guys already know that she um, makes the long drive from <laughs> Nevada to Arizona every two weeks, about every two weeks. Um, but what you might not know about Summer is that she has a favorite gas station along the way I do. where she stops I do. that she prefers the bathrooms and yeah. the snacks I actually have a, and stuff like that I actually have a thing a thing that happened about that oh no yeah um an, a new one got built what uh so like the nicest gas better? station it's better I mean I guess now when they build gas stations they no it's amazing like it's, have you been have you yeah. been into a recently built gas station that wasn't nicer it's than super nice every bashes you ever went i know <laughs> than every grocery store i actually went shopping at this one on my way home last time because Some here's the thing know what bashes is, no i know it's it's a, it's a old grocery horrible store. grocery store so here's the thing um my husband has the worst luck with his chart his phone chargers like they just never work and huh. or he or or um, all of his phone chargers have the worst luck when he becomes their owner right. because they just all get destroyed. <laughs> and so I knew I've been watching on my drives this large gas station getting built. I mean, yeah. it's like huge. You've probably seen its progress. I've watched more its progress. Than anyone that's not working on yes. it. <laughs> yes. Um, so I was super excited on my last trip because I was like, it's open. I'm going. I know that's a dumb, like it's a dumb thing to be but excited about, but I was excited about it. It's a drive that she makes regularly yeah there are things she just gets to be excited i was excited about it i watched it grow from when it was just an infant and only had 
it's foundations poured. So anyways, right. so I, I just had a feeling that for some reason I could go shopping in there. I was like, I bet I could find the nicest, most indestructible phone cord for my husband in here. Mm-hmm. Um, and just so y'all know, I was right. And not only is it like the most indestructible feeling phone cord I've ever held, it's like 18 feet long. (laughs) He was making fun of it the other day because it was like plugged in by the sink in our bathroom. And he basically walked it into our room, like still holding on to it. And he was like, do you think you got me one big enough? (laughs) I know they get they they come in ridiculous lengths now. Yeah, they do. I think in rebellion to the the three foot, the three foot one that you used to get. They used to not even be able to plug in right. by your bed and then lay in your bed. Right. Um, but they do. It's they're a little ridiculous. It was yeah. But so convenient. So convenient. I used my niece had one and yeah. I used to make fun of her. Right. And then I mm. stopped making fun of her when she could walk around my whole apartment <laughs> with her phone plugged in. <laughs> right. So just so you guys know, um, if you need a great phone charger, I know of a great gas station in the middle of the desert where you can go get one. Yeah. And it's just waiting there for you. And what is the name of it? Like, is it like a, I don't obviously even remember. like there's a million QTs. Yeah. But no. is it like a chain or is it just sort of a one-off? It has a subway inside of it. Okay. So all I can remember right now is the large the subway, subway is sign. Gas station food. Subway is gas station food. That's true. It's fine. Um, I don't remember. I don't remember. But, you know, um, I have one thing against them. They're kind of liars. So, like, (laughs) I don't like liars. (laughs) Um, But but basically, their their sign for how much their gas cost is, like, 18 stories tall and very bright because they want you to go there. And so it said their gas was two ninety nine, and I was like, "Great, I'm getting gas here." And I pulled in, and it was like four thirty nine. I don't know, maybe like that was the diesel price or something. But all the sign said, the sign way up in the sky, brightly lit. Oh, or it's or they have some sort of rewards program or something that I'm gonna have to sign up and for. And it's like two ninety nine, and then tiny, it's like with rewards. Right, but very, but not lit up, and it was just right. like etched in there with someone's pocket knife before they climbed yeah. down. I'm pretty sure that's what happened. So yeah. Anyway. So that's um, the story of the new gas station. That's the story of the gas station. I'm sure you all were on the edges of your seats. This is what you've been waiting for. Anyway, um, so once again, I just am not going to lie to you guys. We've already interviewed (laughs) our friends. Um, I don't know if you guys remember, and I'm going to introduce them again in a second, but we had Tom Askell on last year. And I asked Tom and Jared to come talk to us today about some issues you guys have been asking me about. Um, But before we start that, I want to give a shout out to one of our listeners. Her name is Lizette. And um, she noticed that I tagged you in that video on Facebook where that mall was flooding. And so uh the band started playing the Titanic theme song. Mm -hmm. Um, And she saw that I tagged you and then she commented and was like, darn it, I was going to tag you guys (laughs) in this video. And then I didn't. And so so she's like the third sheologian yeah in that moment yeah because i was gonna tag you that's so funny you tagged me and she was gonna tag us i mean we were all just in a great game of tag and i just wanted we were to give sharing that sharing headspace. that moment yeah. so just a shout out to lizette because you just you get us yeah. like you just really oh, yeah. get us because when i saw that video the first thing i had to do was laugh a little too loud and then yeah. tag you mm-hmm. that was just like there were no other options well, and you know i saw it and i yeah. was gonna tag you but right. then i was like well this is none of my business 
That's how far it extends. I think people really think well. I'm. I think people think that I'm being dramatic about that. Yeah. But like no. sometimes, sometimes I, I post. I like if I post a picture of something that. Yeah. Of like a vacation. Uh-huh. I'm like, do people need to know about this? Yes. And it's like, well, that's kind of the point of the whole thing. <laughs> and so I'm just one of those people that is constantly fighting the point of the whole thing. So <laughs> she can't stop. <laughs> anyway, Lizette, we love you and we hope you guys enjoy the interview. Okay. So today we are joined once again by Dr. Tom Askell. We had him on last year to talk to us about the social justice and the gospel statement. He is a part of Founders <laughs> Ministries and along with Jared Longshore, they host one of my current favorite podcasts, The Sword and the Trowel from Founders Ministries. Woo-woo. So thank you guys so much for joining us. Well, thanks for having us. Absolutely. Thanks for having us. Glad to be here. It's so nice to um, have some Reformed Baptists that are on the show that I like super duper agree with on almost everything. Because typically it's interesting in order to do that, I have to talk to Presbyterians. Do you guys experience that ever? <laughs> <laughs> we do, but there's a resurgence. We're taking over the world now. That's right. Baptists. That's, That's right. right. I love, I just love the stuff that you guys are doing. Um, so I, we wanted to have you guys on today to talk about a few things, but, um, number one, I have a, I have a pretty, pretty serious question for you guys. And this has been posed to me on Twitter and on Facebook. Um, people know that we're, uh, friends with you guys. I've written for founders before. Like I said, Tom, we've had you on the show before and, um, people really want to know why on earth you guys would have a conference on manhood right around the time and the same location that the SBC is having a sexual abuse crisis. How on earth could you possibly do that? Well, uh, at least two reasons come to my mind. Uh, First of all, because there is a crisis of biblical manhood in our day. So the the theme we addressed was um, mature manhood in an immature age. And everywhere you look, it just seems like there's the gutting of true manhood, the way God ordained it in Scripture and the way that we've been called to live as followers of Christ. And so that's that's a topic that is very much needed in our day. It's very much in season. And we weren't trying to detract at all from anything in the SBC. We were just trying to take advantage of an opportunity to strike a much-needed note at this time in the SBC and beyond. And with regards to uh, the attention on sexual abuse, we are convinced that uh, one of the key ingredients that has allowed sexual abuse to go on in churches or anywhere in our society is a lack of true manhood, a a lack of mature manhood. And if men were doing what God has called men to do, then there would be far less sexual abuse and there would be much greater response to the abuse, appropriate response, than what we've seen. And so we don't see this as a competition at all we see this as thinking more at root level with regard to what it is going on in the whole sexual abuse issue. Amen. I was, uh, I was second and, 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 and I would admit that we, the fact that we held the conference and there has been some question about it, some flack about it. I'd be lying if I said that I didn't anticipate that I anticipated that kind of response and we're trying to put our finger on, on the problem. So, mm that there is a knee-jerk reaction thinking that hey we're supposed to be talking about sexual abuse um, not mature manhood there's something wrong there so some somebody's approaching this issue in the wrong way i look at my 
sons that I'm raising. And I say, sons, there's a problem with sexual abuse in the world. And so let me talk to you about that and pretend like I can have that conversation without touching on what it means to be a mature man. Mm -hmm. You just can't. It's like, well, I like John Piper's definition about the essence of biblical manhood is the benevolent responsibility to lead, provide, and protect women in ways that are appropriate to a man's differing relationships. So it's striking to me that there's this, um, there's this inability to see that these things are very much connected and what we need are men who are going to stand up and protect women. That's right. That's right. right. In, the, in the age of the patriarchy, it actually is men that need to shape the sexual ethic mm-hmm. of a culture, mm-hmm. especially, and obviously that will affect things like sexual assault. Right. Um, and so guys actually have to be there <laughs> right. for that. Right. Right. uh, Conversation. (laughs) Right. I don't think it's unrelated either. The issue of it's interesting, all these issues related towards, you know, justice towards women, even the conversation about whether or not women should be preaching is ultimately a question of how we should be treating women and and what men's responsibilities are. So that made sense to me, too. And I love that you kind of you had anticipated it. Um, Something I didn't anticipate was. what what is up with the the warrior motif y'all have going on? What what is, what is up with that? What's going on there? We got together and we said, what is the most offensive thing that we can talk about <laughs> that will make people mad? And uh, you nailed we it. Think of it on phone, so we just read the Bible. When we read yeah. the Bible, we discovered this. Yes. We thought, hey, this may work. Right. Yeah, Gen- Genesis three fifteen probably makes people really mad. Let's say that. Uh huh. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes, it does. And Revelation nineteen probably makes people really mad. You know, I we, think we, Psalm. I think Psalm one ten will make people really mad. Um, what do you think? Uh, John three sixteen makes people mad today too. You know. I, I, mean, I not, really thought Psalm two would make them really mad if we did that one. Yeah, if we start to do that one. Yeah. I think I see. I think I see where you're going. Yeah. Uh, you know, but we do that too. We just get together and we decide what will offend. Right. And then let's do that. And then we do that. (laughs) It's just too easy. It's really a common, you know, to see the response that we've gotten. Mm -hmm. It's like, you do that, that that is so violent. It's like, and this really does highlight a lot of the difficulty that we are in today is we've got a lot of people who name the name of Christ, who say, oh yes, we believe the Bible's inerrant. And it's as if they haven't really read it. Mm-hmm. And they don't really remember, if they have read it, what's in it. Right. And so they get offended whenever you just simply say some of the things are in the Bible. Right. Right. Well, it's a, it, it, I guess it's because Christianity has become sort of a, it, it's just very subjective. It's actually not, it's no longer defined by like what the word of God says. It's defined by what you feel like maybe Jesus would do. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But who Jesus is, how you know who Jesus is without reading the Bible is a mystery to me, but people (laughs) seem to be attempting to do that. Right. (laughs) Okay. So my, I have a clarifying question. Um, I did get to hear, um, I thought you did a great job in, uh, your debate that you did before the conference on whether or not women can preach. And I have been able to catch, um, some of the, the talks that were given. Um, and so I have a clarifying question. How would you guys define 
Um, and this is important because the, like you guys mentioned, talking about what the roles of men are, you can't, w I feel like what we want to talk right about right now is women. What can women do? How can we protect women? But you're, it's only half the story uh, when we're talking about womanhood, if we're not talking about manhood as well, if we're not talking about these different roles. And I guess that's because um, we're all complementarians, uh, however you want to define the word. Um, but my question that I want a little bit of clarification on is how would you guys define an effeminate man? He's, you want to take it, Tom? Uh, he's a soft man. I mean, I'll tell you that. He's a soft man. Mm -hmm. This comes from the New Testament, and the uh, ESV translates uh, that Corinthians text, I believe, as men who practice homosexuality. But yeah. there are two words there in the Greek, one being malakoi, the same language. Uh, that's used that when Jesus was talking to John the Baptist, that he was not wearing soft clothing. So it has, um, there's this idea of softness that's, that's um, there in the, in the idea of an effeminate man. So again, that's going to take, that's going to take wisdom in the way that you apply it. Mm -hmm. um, I'm the, I, I want to be the first to stand up when a man is being gentle and when he's being quick to listen and slow to speak and, when he's doing the dishes because his wife's at her wit's end in order to give her some relief and bless her, that's not a soft man. That's not an effeminate man. So mm -hmm. it's not that at all, but there is, we still need to uphold this idea that it is, we have a, an egalitarian culture in which we live and we have men being soft and we need to call men to um, be active, to take initiative, to lead, to protect. Um, so that's a little bit of my ideas on it. Yeah, and I would say um, that there is even a distinction to be made between uh, a soft man in that 1 Corinthians 6.10 way uh, versus a weak man. You know, a man can be weak in different areas and yet still be very much committed to the the ideal or the call to be a man, not a woman. But uh, a soft man would be one who seems to uh, be inclined toward the... Um, the ways that God has fundamentally called women to be rather than men. That's no slam on women and it's no uh, exaltation of men. It's just a recognition that God made men and women. And he made them to be different in significant areas. And those areas what Jared mentioned, uh, Piper's definition of, of manhood and, and the womanhood definition corresponds to that in terms of being a helper and receiving uh, the protection of men in corresponding ways that, if a man embraces what it means to be a man, he's not going to be given toward effeminacy. And that doesn't mean at all. He won't be nurturing, won't be caring. Paul speaks about being like a, a mother among the Thessalonians. And, and so the characteristics that seem to, to exemplify womanhood are not necessarily absent in manhood, but they, they are not that which characterize manhood. Yeah, if I could jump in there too, I think it's to get at an answer of what is an effeminate man. Uh, I think dealing with the created order, how God has created man and woman differently, and people say that now when we've kind of reduced complementarity, complementarianism, just say well, then men and women should complement each other. Well, yes, they should, but you got to say more than that, and you can get an idea of what an effeminate man is by going back and saying, okay, what is what it, what are those distinctions? Kevin DeYoung has given an excellent sermon, in my opinion on the beauty of broad complementarianism. And he identified a few different distinctions 
one of which was from First Peter 3 about the woman being the weaker vessel and that she should adorn herself with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. And he, he pulls out of that. So the crowning characteristic of, of men is strength because she's the weaker vessel. And the crowning characteristic of women is beauty. I think those things are apparent just in, through general revelation and then underscored by First Peter 3. And then Tom mentioned the First Thessalonians 2 text. You have exhorting fathers and nursing mothers. Again, there is overlap because Paul was with them like a nursing mother. Uh, but still, there is a, there's a, I think um, DeYoung called that a demeanor. There's this demeanor that's there. He also mentioned Genesis 2, that the eager posture of man is leader. The eager posture of woman is helper. Well, if you take those, take man as leader, man as str- a strong, man as exhorting father. We don't emphasize any of that in our day, and so I think we're raising a whole generation of men that are that are are soft, but really don't even know that they're soft. They don't know that you're supposed to be cultivating the ability to lead, to take initiative, to protect, uh, to exhort, you know, to to um, be strong. So I think that gives us a little bit of an idea of what's going on with the effeminate man. Yeah, and we're not talking about machismo. We're, we're not talking about a Rambo-like uh, demeanor at all. We're just talking about embracing what God has called you to do as a man. So you get up early, you stay up late, you work hard, you, you do whatever in the realms of your relationships you're called to do in relationship to other people. And you do it as a man. You don't, you don't uh, sit back and become passive and live your life that way. Amen. Practically, practically in my own marriage, I try to counsel the men in our church, you know, it's you're leading your wife, meaning you got all this work to do. Here you are. God said, you know, here's the garden. Work it. Keep it. Think of your life that way. And your wife's just, you know, she's working so hard. She's doing stuff. And there's going to be times where it's stressful. And there's going to be times it feels like we can't hit the next mark or the next obstacle that's there. Well, part of that is the man needs to take the bullets. Like whatever it is that's, that's left undone at the end of the day, he, he does it. He takes care of it. And then his wife's going to see that and in that he's encouraging her like he's actually doing the hardest thing and showing that we're going to be able to do this together that fuels her to to go oh yeah i see it i'm not alone and then all of a sudden you see her flourish and her take on your fight even harder and whatever it is that's being done but the man if he abdicates responsibility and says well you know these are these are totally her things and i'm not going to sit down and counsel her i'm not going to sit down and like and and help her and tackle these things that are that are challenges, whether that be the kids or whatever it might be. So it's it's like the responsibility is always there on his shoulders to make it happen. You know, Jared, um, I have met your wife, and I got to tell She's you, the bomb. she. <laughs> you know, there's there's only a few ladies I've ever met and just immediately been like, yeah, we're best friends. Um, and she's one of them. You just, I mean, your job's easy. Okay. That's all I have to say. That is true. That's true, sister. Amen to that. When when you look at Jared and Heather together, you immediately think he must be rich. (laughs) Rich with crowns, many crowns. She's a crowning jewel. Anyway, tell Heather I said hi. Um, and, you know, I've gotten to know Hannah, your daughter, Tom, and you did a great, great job with that one. I think if we met yeah. in person, I'd have the same reaction. Well, that's her mother's influence on her. Uh, <laughs> okay, well, switching gears here. Um, so you guys have had to talk about this a lot 
recently because of what happened to us, the Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, what was that? Only a week ago? Week and a half ago now? Like it just happened. Six yeah. <laughs> Feels like a long time ago. Um, last week. Right. Last week. Okay. So last week there was this big thing that happened at the Southern Baptist Convention 2019 that um, everybody's been talking about, and it had something to do with Resolution 9. So the, my first question, because, you know, Joy and, neither Joy or I are Southern Baptists. We've never belonged to a Southern Baptist institution, as far as I know, Joy. No? No. Okay. Um, so Your dad did. Who's that? Your dad did. My dad did. Yes. Yes, he did. Um, that, and that when pre-summer. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> right around the time I was born, I was like, Dad, we got to get out of here. Um, so anyway, <laughs> Um for those of us who don't know or maybe are confused, what in the world is a SBC resolution? And should any of us who aren't a part of the SBC care? Well, those are two big questions. Uh, the first was technically answered that a, a resolution is what, when it's affirmed by a convention, it is a record of what the convention at that time believes. And so there, it's not a call to action. It is a statement of belief and resolution. Uh, resolutions can be submitted by any Southern Baptists who are qualified to be messengers to the annual convention. convention. They have to be submitted now 15 days before the meeting of the convention. And there's the resolutions committee that looks over those proposed resolutions. And they can either decline to bring them out of committee they can uh, edit them to bring them out of the committee edited, but from the original submitter, or they can write their own resolutions. And typically every year, all three of those actions are taken. So a, a resolution doesn't have any binding authority on any Southern Baptist church or entity, but it does express the mind of the convention at a particular day on particular subjects. Okay. Why you should care if you're not a Southern Baptist, well, <clears throat> that goes to a larger question of the Southern Baptist Convention is the largest Protestant denomination in America. We claim to have 15 million, 15 million people. Uh, FBI can't find half of them, so we know <laughs> it's that big. But still, at 7 million or so, it, it's still pretty formidable for a non-Catholic religious body in America. And what goes on in the SBC has impact on America, on our culture. And it has some impact on other uh, religious uh, Christian organizations and Christian churches as well. So if the Southern Baptist Convention goes bad, it's going to be like a, uh, uh, a, rece a receding tide. It's going to lower all the ships. Mm. But if the Southern Baptist Convention does well, then it will be helpful for other denominations, other churches, other Christian organizations in the nation as well. So there's a lot on the stake beyond, at stake beyond the SBC in what happens in and to the SBC. Right, right. Okay, that makes sense. Okay, so with that background, just give us a brief overview. What is the big deal with Resolution 9 that came out of the SBC last week? Go ahead, Jared. Yeah, well... Um, there was this resolution on critical race theory and intersectionality. And the big problem with the resolution as it was originally stated 
is that it did not identify the nature of intersectionality in critical race theory. It merely said that these two things can be used as analytical tools. It did not state that they were ideologies contrary to Christ, contrary to Scripture, which is what Neil Shinvey has said, it's what Al Mohler has said, it's what Tom Askell has said. It did not identify that critical race theory is indeed a theory, and intersectionality is a worldview. Neither did it acknowledge the origins of those movements. And um, so Richard Delgado in his book on critical race theory is very clear. He's just a modern-day critical race theorist. He says that uh, critical race theory is based upon radical feminism, the postmodernism of Derrida, and the neo-Marxism of Gramsci. So he, he's very clear. It's not a fallacy of origin because he says critical race theory is built upon these ideas. So that was concerning. We tried to offer an amendment. Tom stood on the floor and uh, Founders was involved in trying to get this all worked out. But that, uh, though Tom offered that as a friendly amendment, it was not received as a friendly amendment. And um, so we are now, we've now resolved to use critical race theory and intersectionality as analytical tools without acknowledging, in fact, what they are and their origins, uh, which are both contrary to scripture. Right. How would this not be an issue of it being like a genetic fallacy? I mean, I, well, let me back up for a second. Our listeners, Joy and I have been making the case for a long time that we need to reject these worldviews, that um, they come from a bad place, they're built on a bad foundation. Why now would we look at them uh, and want to take anything from them? What, what is inherent in there that we might want to use? Well, both Jared and I have had conversations with uh, Southern Baptist professors and pastors, others, over the last many months about some of these questions. And typically, the answer that I've gotten is that this is a way for us to understand racism. Critical race theory is a way for us to understand racism as it is actually being experienced by racial minorities. And uh, those in the uh, racial majority groups do not typically perceive this, or not at least readily. So critical race theory can help us think about things like systemic racism and uh, about uh, this widespread oppression because of race that goes on. And so that, that there is this, uh, this belief that we can use critical race theory, intersectionality, political theory uh, as tools to help assess the way things really are. My concern is that, uh, as Jared pointed out, th these things arise from godless worldviews. And if, if they ever say anything true, okay, well, they're saying things true because they accord with what God has made the world to be and the reality we have in the world, and they're not going to be at odds with Scripture. But whenever you follow out the ideologies of critical race theory and intersectionality, which is the way that they are typically used in the world today, they're not used primarily as analytical tools. There may be some in rarefied scholastic errors that, are, that, that do that you know, here from time to time. But by and large, these are ideologies that drive agendas. In fact, Delgado says in his book with uh, Stefanczyk that critical race theory intends to change things. It, it promotes 
the, uh, the change of society. So to say, well, I'm going to use the tools of a theory that is bent on changing society without going along with the change of society that it is bent on, well, it seems right. unwise to right. me at best. So I, I think it's dangerous. And my one of my big protests against the resolution as it came out of the committee was that it said that critical race theory is a set of analytical tools. And then the chairman spoke against my, my amendment saying that uh, the resolution simply wants to make plain that critical race theory and intersectionality are simply analytical tools. Mm -hmm. And that's not true. Mm -hmm. They're not simply analytical tools. That's right. It's funny. Joy and I first, the whole reason that uh, we even started talking about intersectionality uh, two and a half years ago was because what we were seeing was what we were seeing was the idea of intersectionality being lived out. And what I mean by that is we were seeing groups of people, groups of friends actually being torn apart and there was all this division. And so we started paying attention to the conversations around this. Like, what is it that's, that's making, that's bringing all this trouble into these relationships, to these friendships, into these churches. And what we found was that, intersectionality had the philosophy of it had made its way into these groups of people. And so it's interesting now that the SBC is saying, well, it just can be used as a tool, but every time I've seen intersectionality at play, if it was a tool, it would be a wrecking ball, not something that <laughs> could be building anything up. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I, I would, I would second that summer. The, as you, you know, we do need to consider critical race theory and intersectionality. We need to go, you know, Peggy McIntosh and visible knapsack stuff and Kimberly Crenshaw. People need to do that work. And but one thing that's evident to me pastorally is this a, a, a worldview of oppressor and oppressed. It permeates much of our life in 21st century America. Um, you know, I think it's Richard Weaver wrote the book, uh, Ideas Have Consequences. He talks about the great stereopticon in there. Like you're just being discipled all the time. Mm -hmm. And so I often try to illustrate this, and especially in the movies we watch. I just want people to have their eyes wide open. I go crazy on Disney princesses all the time and probably offend <laughs> people really bad. But I cannot escape. Every one of them has some numbskull father and some princess and she wants to be free, and she's held down, and this guy stands in her way. And so the whole idea is I'm, I need to be liberated from whatever situation I'm in. You know, with Little Mermaid, she was, she was a slave to the sea and wanted freedom to go to the land, and Moana was a slave to the land and wanted to be free to go to the sea. And I want to tell them, hey, which one is it, girls? <laughs> I, right. mean, every, every, I mean, go to the movie Brave. Every one of these are like this. Patrick Deneen has dealt with that on a higher level in a book called Why Liberalism Failed. And he was actually talking about a redefinition of liberty that's gone on in our society. And I think all of that's related. So you, you begin to really, you, re, you begin to buy into this worldview, even if you've never heard of intersectionality, even if you've never heard of critical race theory. Mm -hmm. And I think pastorally, it's just, you're done for when you buy into that, that worldview that is not, that you're not using the same lenses that scripture provides us. That's right. So where do we go from here? Well, in the Southern Baptist Convention, 
where we go is trying to teach, teach, teach uh, people in our churches, teach pastors to wake up and recognize what is going on. Uh, I, I do think Resolution 9 may well be the wake-up call we have needed for a while to make folks stand up and say, wait a minute, you know, I need to understand what's happening. Are you really saying this? And then to take appropriate response. Uh, we, in the SBC, we elect a president who serves a one-year term and typically gets a second-year term. J.D. Greer is in his second year now. So the SBC will convene again in Orlando next June. And I would encourage all concerned Southern Baptists to make plans now to show up and to let your voices be heard. There hopefully will be some organization going on before Orlando to uh, give us some specific action steps that can be taken. But within the convention, we, we need to wake up and realize we're in, a, we're in a precarious position. And if we don't get in front of this thing and make some strong steps very quickly, uh, we can slide right back down to where we were in the 1970s, 60s and 70s that, that called for the uh, rise of the conservative resurgence. So that's within the SBC. In the broader evangelical world, in some sense, same thing, though you don't have the uh, political concerns within the denomination itself. But I've heard of not just the SBC, but everything uh, from Methodist groups to Baptist, other Baptist groups to even the OPC having to deal with some of these issues as well at different levels. And so I don't think anybody today who loves the Bible can just rest and go to sleep and say, oh, this isn't going to touch me or our group at all. This is mm -hmm. the air breathing right now, and we just yeah. have to be aware. So, um, sorry, I was just going to well, say you guys would agree that pretending it's just a tool that's doing nothing is would be an incorrect assessment. <laughs> of yes. what critical race theory and intersectionality is. Yeah, absolutely. It can be, I mean, it, what's interesting is if you just read up on a little bit, it might help you understand how people are thinking so that you can show them the truth. You can show them the error of, of how they're processing the world. But um, I think doctrinally, summer to your question about solutions, doctrinally, we need a massive recovery of the doctrine of the law of God. Mm. And we need a massive recovery of the doctrine of the gospel of God. And the How question is always by what standard <laughs> and there's going to be there's going to be real oppression in the world. And by all means, let's identify it mm -hmm. and let's do justice and love kindness and walk humbly with God. But you're going to have to say what I've noticed is some of the when when the victim when the victim idea goes wrong. What's fascinating is even people that are in, in certain situations, people that are claiming to be victims are actually really just given to legalism it's crazy because they're they're not on the word of god anymore they're not on the law of god anymore that's right and you're demanding something from people that's not required in the law of god anymore and so we often say you can avoid legalism by emphasizing the law just emphasize it in the right ways pay pay close attention to it and then remember the gospel that every single one of us are in rebellion you know jesus did not come uh, to save the vulnerable, that's not the, the primary emphasis of what's going on. He came to save rebels, those who were depraved. Uh, so I think we need to get very clear on law and the gospel. And if you're interested, Founders Press has just published a book called The Law and the Gospel by Ernie Riesinger. So Ooh, sorry for that right. shame that shameless plug, but there it is. Go ahead. That's fine. <laughs> if you don't send me a copy, I'm going to have to edit that out, though. So that's... Oh, we're sending a copy. <laughs> Um, I do I, I do want to ask you guys to 
just sort of this is something that I've asked a few people we've had on and then I've also talked about it on Apologia Radio another show that I'm on um but this is so I had an interesting thought about sort of the application of intersectionality and critical theory and it's in regards to the communion table and how um acts of sexism or racism um would be considered a hatred of neighbor and obviously if you had an, a, a problem with an individual that would be something that you would need to resolve before you came to the table um and to me that indicates well if people really people really believe uh critical race theory or intersectionality there's a huge inconsistency in their churches because i think people are still allowed men and white men specifically are still allowed to go to the table um or uh, so I, I feel like people are being consistent with that topic but I also feel like just that image of people not being able to faithfully come to the table is um, it's it's just very revealing about what critical race theory and intersectionality should be doing in its application. So I guess my my statement slash question <laughs> is um, what are why do we need to protect? Or I guess I should say, do we need to protect the fellowship of the church and the communion table um, from critical theory and intersectionality? Yeah, I think so. Because, again, these are competing worldviews. And it's hard, if you even see them as analytical tools, and that's all you're trying to use them for, it's hard to pick up the tools of those worldviews and not fall into the presuppositions of those worldviews. And as, as you just alluded to with your illustration of coming to the Lord's table, I mean, the Bible recognizes two fundamental types of people, uh, mm -hmm. those that are out Christ under the wrath of God and those who have been reconciled to God by the life and death and resurrection of Christ. And if we maintain the Bible's analysis of the human race, then those who are in Christ have more in common with each other than we do with anybody else who looks like me, acts like me, same color as me, same uh, sex as me, same life experiences as me, who's outside of Christ. So an 80-year-old Christian has more in common with a 10-year-old Christian than he does with another 80-year-old who may look just like him who's outside of Christ. And we lose that if we start employing these tools and imbibing the worldview from which they have come. And consequently, we, we start looking for solutions that these ideologies uh, tell us we must find to solve the problems that they are uh, identifying. And, and the, the solutions to the problems that intersectionality and critical race theory identify can only be found in political efforts. The gospel cannot solve the gospel cannot solve uh, everybody not being treated equally or having equal outcomes of life. If you're looking for that, if you're going to have to find something in the place of God and appeal to it to exercise its dominance in order to bring about the outcomes that you think will be just. And that goes back to what Jared said. It's by what standard. If we're going to live by the word of God, then we're going to be people of God's law and God's gospel. 
That is the, right. Um, oh, go no, ahead. no, you go ahead. I just wanted to, that deserved an amen is all. <laughs> oh, yeah. Amen to that for sure. And and your point about the Lord's Supper is a good one because there, I think there is, um, boy, may we come to the Lord's table often together in times like these. There's there's at least two things going on when we do that I think are, are wonderful antidotes to some of these worldly ideologies that we're facing. Um, and, and the first, the first one is certainly the the unity of Christ there at the table. We're coming to one table. There is one Lord. There's one faith. There's one bread, one cup, and we're gathering together. And it's very clear there are there are Christians, those who can come to the table. That's one group. And there's those who are not in Christ, who are not to come to the table. And that's a powerful reminder. In the, in a, when people, when a worldly ideology wants to divide up the body of Christ and chop us up into pieces, what a powerful testimony to come to the table and eat and drink together. And then, and then the second is the joy of doing so. You know, we come to that table rejoicing as we remember Christ, who's broken for us and whose blood was shed for us. And now's a time, more than ever, that we need to be rejoicing. As you know, there seems to be such. Um, division and animosity that is birthed by these troubling philosophies. Here's the body of Christ uh, lifting up the bread and the cup, eating and drinking together. That's right. Amen. Okay. Well, I have one more last question for you guys and it's very important. Um, so don't mess this up. Uh, all right. You're on death row. <laughs> what do you ask for as your last meal? Tom, you first. <laughs> Hmm. Last meal. Last meal. Death row. Uh huh. It's uh, very serious. It's very serious. Have, yeah. Okay. <laughs> I would have to have um, a T-bone steak and lobster. Oh. Okay. <laughs> You're going all out. Can this be from Red Lobster or is this homemade or? <laughs> no. no, we're not getting any of that cheap Red Lobster stuff. I want to Maine. <laughs> okay got it do you want any sides or anything or just just that uh yeah maybe a ribeye for a side oh okay <laughs> gotcha nice. going out with a bang all right jared what is your last meal so here in uh in lovely fort myers cape coral area in southwest florida where we live I drive over the Caloosahatchee River with my wife every year to a place in downtown Fort Myers called the Veranda for our anniversary. Aww. And there uh, we enjoy, they have lovely cornbread muffins to get you started with some red pepper jelly. Ooh. And we eat it every time. And Ooh. then we get some kind of appetizer, but I don't know, we switch that up. But then every time we pretty much get the uh, a rack of lamb. Ooh. So I would, it is, it's just lovely and amazing it's so yeah it's kind of it's kind of bougie you get yeah um, very bougie i know heather said it's, that it's very bougie we do that <laughs> once a year right <laughs> the, um, but i have to eat that on death row It'd be remind me of my lovely bride and the food's amazing oh man i can take any lovely thing and make it extra dark just add death row and you're like right. well <laughs> this is dark <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's <laughs> it's up to everybody why you're on death row. Yeah, we'll leave that on I'm there. sure some people have some opinions. You got that theology of glory and you got that theology of the cross. So that, yeah, that's good. Right. 
All right, guys. Well, I I really appreciate you taking your time out and chatting with us about that. I think it was extremely helpful. Um, Will you let everybody know where they can find you, listen to you, partner with you? What do you got going on? Yeah, Jared, go ahead, man. Yeah, so go to to, uh, founders.org. That's our website. You got thousands of articles on there. Uh, the Sword and the Trowel podcast is our podcast can be found from there. We have all kinds. Of, we have a study center. We have books that we publish. So founders.org is going to be a main place. We're on all social media platforms. Go to Facebook. Uh, follow us at Founders. Go to Twitter. We're on there. Instagram. We're on there. We have a YouTube channel. So go to YouTube and do Founders Ministries. Tom Askell. He's on. You can find his Twitter at Tom Askell. Jared Longshore from my Twitter. Jared Longshore. And uh, we'd love to have you checking all that stuff out awesome well thank you guys so much yeah, thank, thank you. you all right we'll talk to you later see ya all right all bye-bye bye and are you still there i'm still here okay yes all right well hey thank you guys so much seriously that was very helpful and um i just think our our people they're really gonna appreciate it so we appreciate you guys well thanks for having us Absolutely. Hey, keep on the good fight. I will send you a link when this is posted if you guys want to share it. If you don't, that's fine. And um, <laughs> I'm sure I'm sure we'll be talking again. And Jared, um, tell Heather I said bye. I will. She says bye. Okay. Someone says bye. Heather <laughs> says bye back. All right. I'll talk to you guys later. All right. See you all. Bye. Bye. bye.